Welcome to the 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective. You were defeated, left for dead. All is ashes. Your heart stirs, your broken body numbing with the rage of retaliation. Werewolf the Apocalypse Retaliation, a new board game set in the world of darkness created by the same team behind Vampire the Masquerade chapters. Flyups, imagination leaping ahead. Hey folks, Brennan here. Thanks for tuning in to our 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you want to reach out or follow us, we're on Facebook and YouTube as 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade, Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch as 25 years of VTM, and on our website at 25yearsofvtm.com. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, this is Bob coming to you solo today as we're going to kind of trip through the Stargazer book to, uh, well, to effect. Um, uh, no Nick this time around as we have uh, not been able to sync up schedule-wise, but we still old podcast, so I- I'm on the hook naturally. Um, so we're going to go through and deliver this accordingly. Um, it's one of the many downfalls of different time zones, FYI, uh, Sweden, America. So <laughs> without further ado, the tribe book today we're going over is the Stargazers. It's uh, the 11th tribe book. Uh, that they've, they've released for uh, for Werewolf here. And it's the first edition version. So what we have here is a very raw, seated, heavily thought out concept of what we want with the tribe book. What I'm going to tell you here off the bat, this is very philosophical, this book. It's um, typically not the most popular of tribes for that very reason. They have a an aspect of what they want to get into with Werewolf. And one of the questions we're going to ask ourselves here is, uh, is this really the feel of werewolf we were, you know, that everyone imagines and encapsulates? Does it fit, right? Um, this is also the reason why a lot of stargazers just weren't uh, seeing a lot of play. There are folks who naturally love them, right? Just like anybody, they're a favorite. Um, but you begin to wonder, why aren't they easily chosen? And that is because they're the most complex. I mean, easily we look at this, and when you have philosophy added to anything to such degree, it's going to add to the complication of the portrayal. You're going to have a hard time seeing it um, from just a typical read. It's going to require a lot more thought, really a lot more effort into a game that's requiring you to put already a lot of effort into imagining you're this shape-shifting creature put here by guy to do so much. So I feel that that is a stress to the tribe. However, that's also a challenge worthy of a lot of experts at werewolf for those who would classify themselves as i've done everything this is a good next level challenge in no way am i saying this doesn't belong in werewolf however that's not necessarily what the other tribes would say about the stargazers as we're about to, to unveil here for a little bit first and foremost when we get to this book we typically have an opener uh, that you'll get to but i really don't want to skip past this um the author has a dedication here that talks about Allen Ginsberg, who's a, who's a poet um, of phenomena, a phenom of a poet. We'll just put it that way. But I'll just read the dedication. It says this work is respectfully dedicated to Allen Ginsberg, uh, the holy crazy Buddha of the beats. His poetry cut through bullshit and illusion. A true Bodhisattva who spread compassion all around him. If more of us learned to listen, uh, if more of us learned to listen to him, we would really know how to howl. Now, this comment directly relates to Allen Ginsberg's super famous poetry or poem, I should say. Titled Howl. Very, very good. Had a chance to uh, pick it up and look at it based off of this to see what it was like. 
it's definitely it's poetry. It's going to speak to everybody differently and speaks to those those times. I believe it was like early sixties, late late fifties, early sixties, which is when it came out, and that's the that's the effect. But this is just one of the deep philosophies and poetry that that went into the creation of this book. Now, if you guys are a fan of Bill Bridges, this is of course his authored book uh, that he did here for Stargazers, which will lend to its credence and is the being something very deep, very personal, very good here for a werewolf. I'm a fan of Bridges in a lot of ways of what he what he dives into and the artistry here helps you think of werewolf in a spiritual sense definitely along the the third eye opens and the awakening of the world and a sense of peace these things just are weird to somebody who came from the previous tribes that were all very i I would say instinctual and hands-on and and what we'll say passionate to violent is where it went to right when will you rage things happening you have to be the defender the avenger and it gets different here. We talk about a way of peace here in a lot of ways. And without hearing me traipse through this blindly, there are other inspiration here. For instance, we have the great Osensei himself, the founder of Aikido, Ueshiba Morihei, who is uh, there quoted a couple times off the Art of Peace that he wrote, authored. And it's, it's pretty cool in here. And it helps ground you in an idea of this book being not only martial, but Eastern influenced. And uh, definitely enlightenment from there, of course. And it is awesome to see that. I really enjoy that uh, that bridge gap feel of having a unique tribe book that's going to force you to get out of your comfort zone and think bigger. You know, think of think of other concepts that can add to what they're talking about. In the beginning of this, though, you're going to get a, a a comic book. This is the first step where I know for a fact would be, it was a contender for a lot of my friends, I could say that. We won't get into why, other than when you look at it, the comic book opener is basically a series of images, and they're meant to elicit a response. Now, response is for you to think deeply about the pictures you're looking at. And you may be thinking to yourself, no shit, Bob, that's any picture. Any picture, you got to look at it, see what's going on, and kind of draw from it. But it's very easy for us at this point as fans, as the 11th Tribe book, many other books came out for Werewolf. And this is in a time when it was hot and drops. You buy it, flip through it, look for stats, look for the cool. How can it help me? And you move on. This forces you to slow down. And I'll tell you, it shows a picture. The first one is like a, is a color, full color uh, comic photo. It's ter- terrible to say, a full comic book page. Uh, that says it's uh, basically it's a forearm Krenos female with the symbol of the Stargazer tribe, Clay Tall symbol, uh, in the middle of her chest. One arm, she has four of them, right? One arm holds a silver sword or clave that's on the real world side. And uh, you can't really tell if it's either or because it's cut off. It's really just the hilt, but you can tell it's a full weapon. And uh, then you have one arm, and that might mean something. Don't know. And that's on the side of the real world shows the sun and the grave below, right? On that side. However, on her other half, she's holding a arm that is uh, basically a bonsai tree on the spiritual side, and it's night there, and you can see the representation of the armbolt paths, right? Sort of call it to, to a lunar path is what it reminded me of when I saw it, um, but Forum Krenos is a, is a bit of a trip. Also on the side of the, the real world, you have a, a palm of flame that's on one of the other forearms, the third arm at this point, and then the fourth one is a snake wrapped around but on the spiritual side. And you have to take all this in, and it's like, that's all you get. You're looking at it going, huh? And, and I, I sat there and did it several times, right? And even now, in terms of analyze to relate to, it's hard to describe in word. You'd have to see it. However, that's not all you get. The rest of the comic shows, it goes from a female to a male standing um, 
on one leg, one leg's up, and then it looks like a martial pose, or maybe just a meditative pose is the best way to put it. Maybe both. And there he is, sitting in between two worlds, very much representative of, of to me, Guru. And he goes through the cycle. The images getting weirder and stranger as they go, like like the eroding world, the destructive forces. He, he shifts. He's taking Glabro, Kronos. What does this mean? Because that's all you get in the comic until it comes to the very end, after everything's melted or changed. It's him standing underneath a great tree, or I shouldn't say standing, kneeling under a great tree like he's coming out of it. What does it mean? And it's and it's profound to think about now. Later on, it kind of gets to it in the book where basically it's describing the tale of Claytal. And Claytal is this werewolf who basically we can call him the enlightened one, right? It would be the great monk in any other cool religious movie you would see about, you know, sort of a, a callback to like Kung Fu The Legend Continues. At least that's what it reminded me of. This would be the old man on the mountain, the one who had attained the greatest oneness of all, and there he sits, or to the Buddha is where where I feel it comes from. However, it's a great rendition of inversion of it that they have in here for a character for Werewolf. Now, Clay Tall here, as it says, this comic is the path to liberation uh, that talks about the life of the changing breed. So maybe it's not just Clay Tall, it's kind of talking about maybe it's a callback to all. And indeed it is, Right. Now it says, before Claytal, I was like other Guru, confused and angered at the changes wrought in the world by humans. Since Claytal became enlightened, realizing the star within him, that is the self, and the existence of the true Gaia realm beyond all illusions. I have returned to the world over and over to free each and every creature of Gaia from the web of illusion, which is a quote from the 989th Claytal that is actually telling the tale of the tribe book, well to you, the cub. Who's learning what it is to be. Actually, it's not a cub. I should correct that. To you, the werewolf full that's coming from the Get Offenders tribe book, which is what it indicates here. And that's interesting in and of itself, right? There's full interest. How is that possible? Up to this point, we never talk about, well, what happens when a werewolf doesn't like the tribe they're in or doesn't fit or makes a change? And can they make a change in what it is? And, and technically, sure. You shouldn't, and I'm positive a tribe's going to do everything they can to stop that. Like, what is your issue? Why is it that you feel that what you were born into, you no longer want to be a part of it? And you're going to cut yourself loose. Well, what if you're a get a fetish that doesn't believe into the strength motif? You don't feel you should go around having to test yourself constantly in strength, and there's got to be more than this. Where would you go from there? Certainly other tribes would adopt you. There's a policy that the Black Furies have about adopting males and what they do with that. Not them adopting them, but what they would do with their males. They might give them to a tribe, and there's a rumor that they out and out kill them, and we'll leave that where it is. Um, but they like to espouse all female, but not really. What do they do with their males? You know, there's that too. And so there's definite versions of this as to tribal adoption. What does a Red Talon do when they have a somehow a Hamid born uh, to a, to a Looper's bred uh, group? Does it happen? Certainly could. How? Who knows? Maybe it's a percentage chance. Nobody knows. But the point is that when these things happen, they don't just kill off Guru because you need every warrior. But here it's talking about not that it was a matter of birth or that any one circumstance occurred. And I think it's important. This book is talking about, off the bat, the philosophy that a werewolf might hit a brick wall with this whole rage, gnosis, spirituality, Gaius thing and need to go somewhere where it's seeking the answers to these internal questions. A very existential thought process, right? Great. Here's the book, and you have it, and you have a character who's saying, on the 989th Clay Tall, 
Let's pause for a minute. We get that Clay Tall's a stargazer, the most famous one, but what's his relevance? You're not even getting to that yet. You're just saying this dude says he's this. That's a hell of a title, and that's exactly how they punch you in the beginning of this book. But to talk about it, it's necessary. The design is to open your mind to the possibility of a different pattern of thought, to change the standard thinking you typically have. This whole book is about that. It's not meant for you to stand on, you know, what you came from or what you knew. You need to come with an empty cup. And if it's not empty, they have ways to empty it to help you understand and maybe reach where they're at. Doesn't stop there. You have a chapter one that titles it as the Lifetimes in the Gaia Dharma, right? So after it's sort of a introduction where the Clay Tall speaks to the, the new incarnation of Clay Tall, we'll just say that, um, speaks to you, the cub, and kind of rolls further to explain some very controversial ideas off the bat. Like you almost don't even get to catch your breath here. Now, when we talk about Gaia Dharma, that's exactly what they refer to here. Um, I believe what he says is in here, and I quote, only by living and failing over and over does the ego lose its sway over the self, allowing you to question. And that's a period at the end of question, right? That's, that's to say, you have to fail before you can understand. You know, how well do you know something unless you fail at it, right? Success is easy, but to get to success, doesn't one have to explore? And to explore, doesn't that mean that you don't know? And how do you succeed at doing something if you don't know how to do it? And it's breaking down everything to a thought process of a learning student, that this is how we all learn. And we forget the simplicity of this rule. There is no skip to competency. You must always explore and try what you know. And that's, to me, what he's exactly saying to this cub and you, the reader. We're going to go over some terms. You're going to have to let go where you came from. And it's okay that you don't understand. And it's okay that you don't know. And we're going to try to help you with that. But you have to open your mind and possibility that maybe you were not correct in your learning of something or didn't understand it fully. And maybe when you get through this, you're going to assume you do, but we're going to show you why you may be wrong in that again and to broaden your view. Now, that right there is letting you know it's okay to be wrong because you need to to learn. True wisdom, after all, is only obtained through failure and then the success. You know how to do it wrong. This must mean avoid doing the wrong way and eventually you'll do it the right way, which is precisely what it means. Um, this also means those who claim mastery of something, they're the biggest failures of that something ever, right? I may be good at role-playing, that's through a mountain of failure and having to learn to get it right and getting frustrated and trying and trying and trying. That's another way of looking at it. Um, that said, when you think about the aspect that this guy's the 989th incarnation, how is that possible? Now, you may know what reincarnation is, but we're not going to trip on that. You can look that up in your own time and get deep with that. Many religions espouse this, that have philosophies to this, that drive toward this with a strong belief. There's an aspect of this in Werewolf, obviously in the Stargazers, 100%, and in the past lives background that they've given since first edition in the main book. And all past life is, is exactly that. It describes how much you remember of the guru life you once had. That you were guru before, and obviously the more points in the past life background, the stronger this connection to pull on those memories of it and the wisdom. However, I bet a lot of players only use it as a reason to have like a backup ability. Right, we, look, we related to abilities we could have or maybe some ST knowledge of a past event in a clinch moment for plot or what have you. And that's okay. It's designed to do that too. 
But with the advent of something like the 989th Clay Tall, it's showcasing that you could have a really broad background that opens up who you once were. And that there might be a story told where you have this in a storyteller's hands you trust, where you want to actually get more out of your background than just some points or, or clinch uh, usage of them and thus making a broader story, adding purpose to what you have going on. Now, why I like this here is because because they're almost being a thousand clay talls means this is how many times uh, clay tall has gone back through the cycle of life and death, specifically as a guru. That's the important key. He didn't say he's the 989th person called Clay Tall solely. He was also a guru, and that's the important part. You were 989 gurus. Wow. Like, it's super special to be one, but you're claiming more. That would be immense wisdom in how to be a guru, I think. And, I, and that's the point he's hammering home. I, I definitely know how to be a werewolf here. That's why you're listening to me. But we have to think this through. Now, there's concepts that he rolls right into from that, that as you're listening to him, for instance, he tells you after, you know, remember, getting it wrong is the course to getting it right. But then he adds to the cub by saying, I do not claim the other tribes are wrong in all they do. No, no, for they too know Gaia, but they fight the wrong enemy. As long as they spend themselves in rage against it, they will fail. And the true enemy will get stronger. Dun, dun, dun. Wait a minute. The enemy to this point has been the worm or man, as it's pointed out, depending on how you want to look at it. And typically it's the worm, right? It's the worm messing with mankind or the corrupter, the great evil, the big bad, the Malfian master, you know, whatever you want to call the worm in as many incarnations, including the patriarch, which is an evil thing that the worm came up with. And it's like, okay, great. All that's true, but you just said none of that's true. That the worm isn't the enemy. Wait a second, I know about old oh, 12 tribes that want to kick your ass making statements like that. Now, alright, if that wasn't clear enough for you, he comes out and says, Your enemy, cub, is not the worm. Now, I told you, this is a get of fenders that came to him, and now you're a cub. I feel that insult was a sting, but at the same time, how deep of a sting? I feel he's testing the rage of a person in front of him. Like, how young are you? If I make a comment like that, does that sting you when I call you a cub, and how will you react to it? And they're in the narrative. He does get into it. Like, still your, cool your jets here, basically. I'm just going to tell you where it comes from. And I also wanted to see how well you hold yourself. Right? Because it's a gauge for the mentor, the teacher here, for Clay Tall, to gauge just where do we got to start at. Because if you don't have a hand on your rage already, then you're not going to be open to hearing anything past your own aggression. And so we need you to be calm to hear these words clean so you can understand. Now he adds... The worm's ways are not those of corruption, however. That is but a side effect of what the worm can do. It's a deep thing, isn't it? Wait a second. I mean, the worm does something that isn't specifically corruption. That's a side effect. Now, then he turns around and asks the question, why does the worm corrupt? It's a great question. It's a profound one. I ask you that, the listener right now. Have you ever thought of that? You're always told the worm corrupts and does bad things. It's over here doing all this stuff. But why? Why would it do that? If you've heard from other tribes that it used to have a pure purpose beforehand, it was the great ender. Look at it in the aspect of what people present it, but they'll tell you it's different also. is that it was If it was the great ender, was it not death? Well, no one ever directly refers to the worm as death, but didn't it serve an aspect of it? It's the destroyer, right? Because if Gaia creates and the wild is a is a... If God created all and the wild was governed to be the font of creation, 
And the Weaver comes around and grants stability by granting specific traits and subcategories and is segregated um, a whole bunch of people into what they are and slapping titles. Everything lives forever except for the Destroyer, right? Or if you want to call it the Redeemer, however, I've heard it called a lot. But that's supposed to be the worm that comes around and tells things you can die now and you go back to the cycle. Your energy returns to Gaia or in this case the wild and the wild will continue doing what it does. So all three aspects fit in the terms of this little triad here. However, when it's slamming down, if that's what the worm is, is, is the worm death then? Well, no. Death is something that happens to things that the worm comes around and gets rid of. Like That's almost like the signal that the worm comes and renews. All right, or destroys, I should say. And it's like, okay, but death is not the end. The cycle continues, and you need to think of it in that term. However, do you? Right, because it says, why does the worm corrupt is the question for Bob. Right, so if I were reading this book, it's asking me directly, what do I think it is? And then let's talk about it. Well, what do you think it is as the audience? What could that be? Is it to the literal? Runs around corrupting because there's nothing better to do? Well, that doesn't make much sense, does it? If its job is to destroy or what have you or to end things, and that's its function, it's a servant of death, if anything, and it's going around to do just that. There's no point in corruption. Why would I corrupt someone I'm just going to destroy? That seems maddening. It's, it's a veritable paradox, in fact. Weird. However, just because it's wasted doesn't mean there's no purpose. However, when you look at it as a side effect, then, then why the hell does it do it, right? That's almost the next thing. However, to add to it, why would it be so pissed off all the time, right? Where does the rage of the worm come from? Why would you be so mad to have to do what you were put here to do? If you were created to do one thing, and that thing is to be the destroyer, and you're destroying, why do you have to be this rage-filled entity that runs around to do it? This near, you know, beast of war and all the aspects of, why? And can you talk to that? And this answer is very deep, and it's obviously very complex, and you could chisel it, and you can think about it. But Claytal knows the answer, and he says flat out, suffering. The worm is the supreme symbol of suffering. But what is the cause of the worm's suffering? And let's go back. Wait a minute. You're telling me that if the worm does what it does from suffering, and we know that what you're getting at here, it's not, you're not the first guy to say that the worm was trapped and went mad. But you're saying it's suffering is the reason it does everything? Ah, oh, man, you're... Ugh, I never thought about that. Right? It's a lot of people. That's a lot of people who have that mentality. Why would... I don't want to think that deep. We're already too deep into what I want out of my werewolf. Point to the enemy, smash, bash, howl, and tear up. I'm in a pack. Stop slowing it down, bro. No one's trying to get that deep. Uh, you're, you're in the tribe book where, yes, they do. Because what they're talking about is the suffering of the worm means that it is the victim of something else. And the cause of that? Well, it's suffering comes from not what you're thinking. You want to immediately jump to the weaver. You're not incorrect. But what it says is, it's suffering is the same cause as all suffering. The mind. And in this regard, I remember a silly phrase I heard as a kid once. You know, it's mind over matter. If I don't mind the pain, then it doesn't matter. <laughs> right? It's an interesting phrase I heard as a kid once when we were, we were playing football. And it always stuck with me because it was the dumbest catchphrase I'd ever heard, I felt, right? When relating to pain, pain hurts. That's the point. However, in a lot of ways, it's sort of a, a profound thought, you know? If you're a fan of the ancient movie Roadhouse, what is it? Patrick Swayze's in the hospital getting stitches on a wound that this reminded me of. And the doctor tells him, I'll get your anesthesia. And he said, I don't need it. 
And when he looks at her, he does that cool guy thing, that tough guy thing where he's like, pain don't hurt. And he winks at her. And she sews him up. Okay, tough guy. And he doesn't wince as he does it because he's that hardcore. It's like an 80s trope for that, right? But in this case, it's there's some truth to it. What, what are we talking about here in this sense? In his sense, if all suffering comes from the mind, and it's the mind that begets suffering, how so? Right? The very phrase, pain don't hurt, where it sounds cool to say, what are we really getting at? Well, when you analyze pain and want to go deep, and you can do this in your own lab, you begin to know that it's usually the fear around the actual pain. It's the fear and anticipation of the pain that makes it worse, right? Think about getting a shot. Booster shot's a thing everybody had to get nowadays or sign up for for the old COVID, right? Getting that shot allegedly is supposed to hurt quite a bit. And if you're if you're afraid of needles, that has to be such a traumatic thing for you to go through and people understand. And that's what it is. But the majority of people have no problem with it, right? If it caused real pain, you'd hear of anesthesia being needed. But the very fact is, it doesn't need any anesthesia. In fact, look away. Think of something else. Hold an ice cube. Hold a hot glass of anything. Anything to distract your senses momentarily from realizing you're getting poked. Push the plunger. You're done. And they move on. That right there really is proof in the pudding that if you truly don't mind the pain and you can somehow have the supreme focus to think of something else, is it really pain then? How bad does pain really hurt when you don't have anxiety over it. It's that simple. Well, okay. If suffering is the anxiety in the over-amplification of an emotional response to a physicality, then what else might this guy be talking about? If the worm is being imprisoned by the mind and it's mad and its own mind is hurting itself, hmm, can you speak to that more? And indeed he does. He says to speak of the source of the mind, the begetter of duality and discrimination, the womb of illusion. I speak of the Weber. Suchigumo, her web entraps all creation. Interesting. Her web entraps all creation even as it gives it form. But truth lies beyond form, beyond duality. Interesting. This begins to see the aspect of Gaia Dharma, right? We're saying that the real world is an illusion. Your body is an illusion. What you touch is an illusion. The experiences you have are all illusions. You are putting extra from your mind's perception to everything you encounter and everything you experience. The concept comes from the aspect, and it's a warrior mindset too, by the way, that they, from a long time ago across many cultures, that the warrior can only deal with the now. The warrior does not anticipate the future because the future you can do nothing about. Not now. You can't dwell on the past because the past will hold you back. Any emotional regrets and things like that, those just get in the way. You can only deal with the now. And so now is something that a lot of people focus on in meditation even to this very day. It's a huge push. A lot of stress and disorders and problems in the world all come because we, almost as a species, society-wise, have lost the ability to create a center of calm to look at things from a calm mindset. And you can understand this, just look at meditation. In meditation, they will always get you to sit somewhere quiet, comfortable, and in a place where you can block out all distraction. And they want you to become beware of the simplicity of breathing, of sitting, of being still, enjoying the sounds, right? The things that you take advantage of all the time and overlook, be it the tweeting of birds, the stillness of breath, the easy in, the deep in, the breathing out. 
You might listen to the crashing of waves. You might appreciate nature more. You might enjoy the now a lot more if you just took a moment to appreciate the now that you're in. However, what it's referring to is that that now idea, that place of calm has been taken from the worm. It's been trapped in the web of the weaver. The weaver. The weaver. And, uh, and the weaver has a trap, and the worm's mind is now the worst thing that can happen to it. And it's suffering. And in its suffering, it's performing corruption as it seeks to make those mad to make them immune to the weaver and thus being stilled, the illusion of the world, to come after it. And we'll get a little bit of that in a minute. But the fact is, this is Gaia Dharma, right? It's the fact that Gaia is truth, the supreme oneness, right? That oneness of calm of all. Only through Gaia can we realize our own true place. Only through understanding of Gaia and the methodical cutting of the web can we come to exist in the true Gaia realm. Huh. So Claytal believes in a true Gaia realm, that there is a place that we all came from, a source of one, and that's Gaia herself. And that anything after that realm we come out of is illusions we've placed upon ourselves, or even, in this case, Gaia put on herself, because that's the part that I had a problem with. If we all come from Gaia and we were all okay, why'd she make a wild? What was the point of the weaver? And she made the worm. If she made all these things, there's a reason. She even made the guru and there it is. So what's the issue here? If this is all just illusion, what's the grand wisdom we're supposed to get from it? And this is exactly what Clay Tall is saying. He's been at it 989 times. He himself is trying to figure this out. You know, what? what is going on with this, right? Now, what's interesting here is that he hyper-focuses on the weaver, right? The weaver is the enemy. Well, how do you defeat the weaver? Now, you could just say up and kill it, destroy it, and all its works, but not even that is what they're referring to here, or what Claytal is referring to. It's saying that you defeat the weaver with the mind, right? The first gift that the weaver gave mankind, shifters, what have you, is higher thought, thus the mind. That's the point. That the mind is something that you utilize to figure out all things. That's what separates you from animals, right? Is that you can have higher level thinking and advancements. No one can contest that in anything. That's like the one gift, right? Well, in that regard, it is a gift. What do we use it for? And he calls out many examples in here of how we get disillusioned. How we try to say that, you know, religions don't exist because we believe in the self. The self is all you need and take care of the self. You'll be okay. But we then have to challenge, well, what about the whole? If we only focus on us, then aren't we taking from others? And if we're not helping others, wouldn't they walk around with the same mentality and thus be in the way of myself? And it becomes a paradox. Like, what, what are we saying? How does this work when we only deal with that? These are tricks of the mind. If we didn't think about any of that and just focus on the simplicity that we do think and we're in the now, none of that's a problem. Everything needs to eat, so we find a meal. Everything needs to drink, so we find water. Everything needs to be warm and safe from the elements, and so we find shelter. Or we make shelter. And that's that. And survival becomes its own simplicity, some, some, yeah, simple goal into itself. All right. Well, really what we're talking about is harmony. The harmonious union of the body meets the mind in the pursuit of the one. And if you have that one guy energy, you've achieved guy dharma somehow. But even still... Claytal claims this is still an illusion. If you are still in this world, you're still not in the true Gaia realm. And that's where we want to get back to. It's a grand importance, right? 
this dude also adds the fact that the liberation of, of life basically is to be guru. Or really changing breed. It doesn't say guru. I should correct that. It's changing breed. That the purpose of the changing breed is to go through all forms and accepting and embracing everything in all its permutations. No matter what it is. That if you can shift from one to the other, that you are truly enlightened. And if you possess the ability to go from um, any manner of creature to, to gender to whatever, that this gives you a profound insight into what it is to be all things. And when you can reach that, that's just that further close step to being one with everything. And that's the aspect folks a lot of times don't want to look at. Right? We look at it from the terms of, if you're not now, you never were. If you're not who I am, then you're over there. And if you're over there, you're not fam. We don't, we don't hold down, right? But you forget that in so doing, you've closed off the rest of the world from your, well, trapped view. If all you ever know is you... Well, then how do you improve? How does your existence get better? And this is where your mind becomes your weapon. And this is what they're saying the worm has done to itself. It got trapped in the web. And it's gone mad believing its own ideals and its own principles and its own wisdom. And even made like, what, three of itself to then talk to itself, to teach itself, to try to break itself free. And it's corrupting people. But what is corruption? But the spreading of itself. To spread that out and have it come back with these maddened versions of different voices of minds corrupted to its core beliefs. So nothing different is actually coming to the worm. It's sent out and weaker selves are coming back with philosophies that just serve to add poison to itself. Therefore, according to Clay Tall, it can't help itself. The worm deserves our pity. And it suffers. And they can see how it suffers because it'll never reach that oneness. So in that regards... Instantly, you got to think of one thing. If you're a fan of Mage at all, you've been screaming, this this is a philosophy that already exists in, in Mage the Ascension. We're talking about, you know, the Akashic Brotherhood. And, and indeed, you're correct. The Akashic Brotherhood factor into the Stargazer tribe book from the first edition. They talk about a great grand book of knowledge that these Stargazers had, right? That they had access to, I should say, in a great library from the original place where all the monks originally went to seek wisdom as Stargazers. And when they went there, they wrote down the great wisdoms and works there. And they worked with a particular form of man that came there that had the ability to perfect the mind. And in this, yes, they're referring to the mind sphere. Now, they do it to where they don't call it a sphere. That's mage talk. Mages can refer to themselves in their own vernacular. But as the stargazer sees it, they have a profound oneness with themselves through the mind. And the purity of the mind is what they sought. And because of that... This gives them an advantage over most guru. However, the Stargazers get to see this and learn from this and be a part of this. And this helps them in their pursuit. But this would be an entirely boring tribe book if it was just a read. But I warn you, it's like 75 pages only. In other words, it's very, it's very succinct. It's to the point on what it wants to get to, which is the philosophy behind the Stargazer, which ironically holds up to the theme that they're talking about. If we're only about a oneness and getting that we should be simple... And get back to the point to where we're free from all the illusions of what it is. Well, you're not going to have 50 camps, although there are camps in here. You're not going to have so many divisive ideas and thoughts and things in the way. Because you're all about shredding illusion and getting to a sense of peace. And thus, I think the trick that Bill Bridges did here beautifully is you have a comic book where almost cheekily you can tell a player, you want to play a Stargazer, huh? Well, once you understand the Clay Tall cycle and what he has done, then you will truly be a Stargazer and you can play one. But does that prepare you successfully to be a stargazer? And the answer is no, it does not. 
right? I'll say that. This book is great to hit the philosophies of a stargazer and what the intent was. It was great to say, here's a tribe book that's dedicated to werewolves and what's going on, but it's going to take patience for someone to pick up this book and see the joy and fun in it from that aspect. However, this there's a saving grace in this book by them simply saying, you are the student who purchases the tribe book. And your job is to play multiple stargazers, not just one. This one that you're playing may focus on uh, the cool aspects of the Gaia Dharma and the philosophy that comes out. And you're going to be this like galliard to go around and spread the wisdom of the suffering worm and how we can heal it through, you know, peace and, and, and Buddhist principles and practices of, of Aikido, whatever you want to do. And you can throw that out there. All right. Meditation, purity, perfection. Okay. Pursuit of harmony. That's not going to be the total of it. And it's certainly not going to end the apocalypse. If that was the thing, and Gaia saved now because you're just that one star, you're that one stargazer, I guess it works. There's more layers to the tribe book. And this tribe book is designed that you read through it once, twice, three times. Every time you want to make a character, which is my recommendation, because the stories are short, it becomes almost a mantra in creativity and helping you to pick on another aspect. Because the trick is to this tribe book, it points out that here are some cool points of history. But now what are you inspired to make out of the history you just read or the words you just took in? And like any true poetry or philosophy, the more you study it, the more you discuss it, the more you experience it, the more ideas you have, which is its point, right? That's the cool part. But each one of those becomes a high, each point that you go, Eureka, I have an aha moment. That's what I'm about. That's one character concept. And you go and play that concept. And then months later or a few years later, however long your games go, you make another one. And you come back to this book and you read again and you have another aha moment. And then you make another one. And thus, this makes this book gold for those pursuits. That to me is everything, right? To, to, to outline so what seems to be vague, but then give instruction as to how you can use it without being overt, without saying step one, step two, step three, refer to chapter 12, page 62. That basically doesn't insult your intelligence as a reader. It encourages you to come back to the book multiple times and thus making it timeless. You could pick this up whenever and read about a, a stargazer and actually get something from it. And thus more inspiration. As a storyteller, there are tons of you're against the grain in the thinking of all the tribes and the danger of it. Even going so far as to befriend and actually admit to, to learning with mages which are reputed to be destroyers of cairns that they sapped they sapped the spiritual strength from the cairn totems and, and all that stuff and their raiders and all that nonsense well i say nonsense because it comes from somewhere but that's the common trope right protect our, our holy sites from these people um although it might not be true at all i mean the stargazers certainly learned something from these akashic and that makes it pretty bold to, of a statement to say, yeah, we trained with them and they were one of the greatest of us to teach us wisdom of the mind. Makes it pretty cool, in my opinion. Now, in here, though, they also talk about, or Claytal mentions, there is a second great ally to helping you get rid of the weaver. And the greatest ally of all is compassion. That which comes from opening our heart chakras to Gaia. Now, that's a term you have to look up, chakras, right? Won't get into it because I think it's fun and you should learn a little. Uh, but the point is, opening our hearts, we can start there. It's a philosophical idea. We're not saying you take a, a clave and cut into your chest and bury your heart to the worm and you'll live. Most likely, whatever entity that was is just going to eat it. And, you know, what did that do? What it's talking about is to have compassion for the suffering of the worm. 
Now, that is a very devastating concept to Werewolf, right? Think about it. But he'll add, without this opening up to Gaia, without heart, we can't trust our minds. Too many in the path have been lost in illusion of their own making, trapped in labyrinths of logic and enigma. If allowed free reign, the mind eats itself, first cutting off the world by discriminating its interconnectivity into discrete, disconnected pieces, and then building its own world with rules of regularity and repetition heedless that Gaia's truth is spontaneity and uniqueness. And what this does is it paves the way for you to walk into Harano, which Harano is the weeping for that which is not yet lost, the melancholy of ignorance. Put in its simplicity, we already talked about it, the anxiety from anticipating the pain. When you live in eternal thinking that I am going to hurt, this is going to end in failure, we can't do this, this can't be done, I suck, I'm not good enough, how do I ever get to do that? That's too big for me, that's impossible to try, we can't get there, we won't ever accomplish it, this is terrible, I'm in agony, guess what? You will fail. Not you might fail, you will fail. You have failed in the mind before you ever applied the body. It's, it's not even possible for you anymore because your mind won't try. And you painted that trap, that mental trap in it. But if you go back to simplicity, to just the aspect of the one, and remember that first lesson he gave, we are going to try and try and fail and fail until one day we have wisdom and we succeed. That is, that is that's almost a universal lesson in, in the world. And it's okay to do it because we all do it. There is no such thing as mastery. There is only experience. That's another way of saying it. For those who idolize people like Bruce Lee and anybody losing weight and super actors and whatever, there is no person you idolize that is unique. They're simply not. That's why there's so many people in a competitive market that can do what they do. They're just not. What you have are people who took the time to dedicate themselves to that which interests them and inspired them to be as good as they can be. But each and every one of them will tell you, we have failed. We have failed so much that we laugh whenever we're put in front of a camera and we're told, oh, we just did this overnight. It's a comical thought process and it's just not true. And so we see it every day as proof. However, there are many people trapped by their own thought process that stops them from even attempting, from even trying to do it. I'll give you a case in point. I thought about stalling this. Typically, I like to have other people on a podcast, in particular when it came to this book. And I sat there and said, man, I got to cram a schedule, make it work, do whatever I can. Let me make some changes and that'll set that back and do all this stuff. We can't do it. Oh, I can't do it alone. Can't do it alone. But can't I? I absolutely can do a book on its own. In fact, I would argue that I do that frequently uh, for patrons and otherwise. And that any game I ran, it's almost the same thing. And suddenly I sat there and said, or do it and see what happens. And then I thought about it. I have done this before. And it was pretty cool. It was fun to do. And it's not like we can't talk about it, but right there is an example, a couple of them, of this thought process that we are our own enemy when we allow our mind to be the governor without compassion. Because this becomes interesting here. Not only is this the greatest ally to helping free the worm is compassion for the worm's plight, it's also we have to use our mind to do it, which is a gift the weaver gave us. How do we use that which the weaver gave us to help us get through it? We already talked about it. You might say the proof is positivity, but we all know positivity is not enough. The compassion has to be there. Through trying and failing, the compassion to get up that we will get it and to believe that we will succeed, eventually you do succeed. Simple, simple as that. And we won't speak another second to it. But what you're looking for also is to talk about the dawn times, the beginning. 
right? Every tribe book so far has had that great beginning story. And what I love about this book, about any other, it says flat out, this is Claytal's own words, our sense of a beginning, like many things, which we believe, is a lie. It comes from our sense of time, our linear moving forward from moment to moment. But time is another of the web's falsehoods, for in truth, we move nowhere, progress nowhere, and do not change. Our true selves are uncreated, unchanging, pure Gaia bliss. And at the same time, you're going to read that section and go, what the fuck are you talking about? And the simple answer is, we're back to that idea of the one. That self, the true Gaia Rum, the beginning. It's referring to that. Everything that comes after it is just fluff. Right? It's an illusion and we're all seeking to get back there. Because that's the task given to us. We will never know why we're in this state, but we can always seek to find it. Which is why Clay Tall doesn't stop and is always seeking. However, there is a beginning that they do have and they talk about it. Basically, in the title section, when you get to Claytal from the East, I won't go over every detail, but it starts with the fact that we're all one Guru Nation. We we didn't have a tribe. The Guru were just the Guru. You went about and did your thing, and that was that. And, you know, through... Uh, eventually, the Weaver gets a hold of it. And through immigration and toil, as they say, they form these tribal alliances. And these tribal alliances become what we now know them, right? However, Claytal wasn't on ball yet. He was still technically tribeless and without any tie. He just came walking around, and he traveled from the east to the west, seeking answers to many questions. And in this, he came about the werewolves of the west when he found the Imperium. Right? He found war between Gaia's creatures and couldn't believe what he saw. It didn't make sense. Sickened by it, the hypocrisy of it, the suffering he saw, it was just ignorant. Monumentally so. However, when you also watch Guru fight humans, and Guru fight Guru... And that the Guru blamed humans for breeding out of control. They, it's like they forgot that breeding is an instinct that is instilled by Gaia. Right? This this thing to grow, to continue the cycle. And and some of that is even quoted, but I can't even... Like, I, I read that and read that so much. I'm like, that's exactly what should be said and put on a bod for you to hear. That it's just simple hypocrisy. Why are you working against your own interests? You were, you're, you're of humanity and you're of lupus both. And you're capable to shift between all. Should it not have given you the compassion to understand what the humans were going through? How is it that you relied so much on just the spiritual strength you had as Guru and the might you possessed? You never got to know the plight of the humans you were supposed to be the mentors to. Not caretakers. Remember that. A good mentor does not do it for you. A good mentor is there on hand for you to get frustrated and go back and have conversations with. That may show you a technique that will help you get through it. That may tell you what you're feeling is natural and to get up and try again. To show that compassion that helps you keep that oneness to get back at it. That's the mentor the guru were meant to be. What they were was the parent. And guess what? Humanity already had parents. Right? They already had someone that brought them into this world trying to figure it out. And they're all trying to survive. And they were breeding out of control. Well, Gaia's the one who told them to breed. Just like the Guru were told to breed. Just like the wolves were told to breed. We all have these instincts. Why did you think that you were meant to stop them? That's the question never asked of the worlds and themselves. But here's Clay Tall going, this makes no sense. You're stepping in and trying to kill them for what again? And who told you that you would be the one responsible for it? And we know the answer, don't we? Right? They don't say the worm, but they do say the self, the mind. 
Suddenly the mind inside the werewolves did for the humans what it did for the humans, right? That if you allow in these illusions, look what it turns into. And that's what Claytal says over and over, right? No doubt humans had grown past what their natural environment allowed through the use of their tools, wonders of invention, which helped them fight back the cold and fell the strongest of prey, sure. But did they deserve slaughter for that? So they figured out a way to um, live better, live easier, to improve themselves. And as they went to do, instead of you having them find and discover a balance, what you said was to step in and tell them no, which inevitably made a natural aggressive response. We all know how humans respond to being told, hey, don't go over there. Don't open that door. It's dangerous. Don't go outside. It's scary. Some human is going to decide to take that challenge. Someone's going to do it because you said not to. It's we're hardwired to do that. It's the strangest thing that actually does make a lot of sense. I myself have done it. Tell me to not do something. Man, I'm tempted off the bat. The only thing I can resist is temptation itself. And, and that's a lie, right? <laughs> it's, it's kind of the point, right? Um, the only thing you can believe is I will lie to you. <laughs> Wink and a nudge, right? It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of phrases you can do like that that are fun to hear and say. But the point is unto itself that this is almost a paradox thought process Claytal goes through. Four, one can also say, Clay Tall, was it so good in the East? What was going on in the East that you don't mention that got you to get up as a guru to travel over to the West and pass judgment on what they had going on? Did the East not have its problems at this point? Well, the answer here isn't in this book, but absolutely they did. And this is one of the reasons Clay Tall went on his journey was to see how it was elsewhere. You know, there was a lot of religion, conflict, and wars going on in the East as there were in the West, but conveniently we don't look to that. <laughs> Which is also interesting in Clay Taw's little path part here, which is where I'm like, hmm, interesting. All right. But basically you say the weaver comes in, does her thing, spins it all out of control. We trap people and all that stuff. And Clay Tall is just, oh my God, why is this going on? This is terrible. Because when, when, when you're wrapped up in the, in the web, you're frozen. You're in a stasis. And, and basically you become numb to everything around you. And the world just is what it is. With no change and no no perfection of the self. You're no longer moving forward. That lack of progress ends up being the extinction of the self. And thus the species. And that's never what Gaia intended. There's no way. And so because of that. You have an aspect of why the stargazers are so contentious. In terms of who wants to play this exhausting tribe. That's going to go around and question. And, and then tell them to look at the worm. The greatest enemy that's been responsible for everything. As this thing we now have to show compassion for to help free it from its own illusions of the mind how do you do that the worm's known for being mad and making servants mad you're telling us to 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 have compassion for it empathize with what it's going through understand and try to lend compassion and understanding to it and thus use our mind to get through it won't that drive us insane interesting point they don't address that completely it's more or less like yeah that's what we're doing and we're going to do it until we get it right basically but is there a way we can do it safely where others are being driven insane? How do we do it? And there is. And just to be cohesive here and, and manage up time here, what they talk about is rage. Rage is the ultimate enemy to the stargazers in a lot of ways. Where the worm is bad, the rage can overwhelm you. It's supposed to be a tool. It's a tool that you use. And when you master your rage and you control it, you are able to utilize it the way it was meant to be used. But when you are maddened and you risk the worm getting a hold of your rage, you are out of control and destructive and you serve its maddened principles. Ironically, 
both can technically temporarily free you from the from the web itself and they're ideal like you can be filled with rage and not care and lash out at the web but you're just gonna end up sticking yourself to the web because you don't understand how to get out of it once you make those openings you just know to break the strands not realizing well you're gonna are you going up down left right you get the idea if you're in if you're in complete abject rage you're not in control of that and thus you're only going to ensnare yourself further think of the struggling fly in the web and how does it work out for the fly you understand that principle of why the madness of rage isn't going to work however what if rage is a tool and we learn to master and control it now we have something certainly it could be used to make an opening but we still need the mind to show us what else we need to do we got the opening now what do we do with it and this thought process is what they're saying to do and what they work toward now in the aspect of the beginning when Claytal forms this we'll call it a cult for lack of a better term i really don't want to call it a cult but basically that's what it is that he forms a monastery we'll probably use the term it does and that's easier to digest but i feel it's cult-esque and on this monastery others come and of those others we get the akashic who come here to talk about the wisdom of the illusion of the world and many other things come from it and you can see it cascade down from the philosophy however the worm sees it and knows it's an enemy that's right folks the worm guns for them at this luminous shrine that clay talk creates and in coming for him you ask yourself why well simply put the worm is insane it, it, it's it's the enemy of all and it's trying to corrupt everybody because it's thinking well here's these guys these stargazers who have this great wisdom who came out of nowhere and what I mean came out of nowhere, when they saw the aspect of what the Guru were doing with the Impergium, remember they ended the Impergium, right? What they said was, you guys are doing it wrong, and these tribes said, how are we doing it wrong? And Children of Gaia basically gave them a challenge and said, if you are so wise and sagacious, how is it that we end this Impergium? What do we do? Can you stop it? And basically the Stargazer stepped forward and said, yes, we can. And so they went to the Silverfang King and challenged him to gamecraft, and if they failed in Gamecraft, they would have to end the Impergium, and certainly that's what happened. The Silver Fang lost, the Stargazer legend grew. They didn't walk forward with might, they didn't walk forward with lack of compassion, far from it. They came forward to say, this is your resolution, it's easily easy to see. How do you cease it? You simply do. The, certainly the Gamecraft didn't prove to you that you had to stop it, because who knows, what did he do, throw a Rubik's Cube at him and said he got 30 seconds, solve it, oh great king? Who knows what he did? But the point wasn't the Gamecraft. The point was, how do you cease this evil of the Impergium? Well, you simply stop, don't you? And that's what they did. And to me, it's a beautiful way to put it. It's saying that, well, in front of you was this, but you had all this anxiety, worry of what they could become and what they were doing. But honestly, a lot of you already knew the answer to that, nor could you stop it. Right? It's going to happen anyway as they are. You being there to try to destroy them isn't going to work. You're just going to turn them against you, which was the fear of a couple tribes. That's that's how it went, right? Because remember, the Silver Fangs even admitted they were ruling out in the open and that the people were turning against them. Right? I want you to imagine one of my favorite things in my head when I read the Silver Fang. I took this note. It would be a great game to run. What really happened in Hadrian's Wall? They want to say it was the BSDs and the guy went over the wall? Yeah, what if it was a case of you had a Silver Fang who ruled openly? as some sort of senator ruling that that uh, that outpost and they were getting assaulted because the Silver Fang was there and didn't care and kept sending humans to handle it and kept bidding Rome to come and do it or else and Rome just sent a phalanx to wipe them out, build the wall and bury it and walk away from it. That would be an interesting game. Now, where I'm just waxing poetic, this ties back to that point that that's what those tribes feared. 
is that this is going on and you can only push humans so far. They are more than us. So the choice would be to have compassion and find another way. To learn again. We failed. Try again. Let's learn. And that's sort of what they say. Well, the worm doesn't forget that lesson. And the worm decides, I'm going to destroy Claytall, these stargazers. This monastery's got to go. Because now there are humans awakening themselves. And that's the part I like about it. These monks didn't just come to Claytall and the Luminous Shrine. They indicate that when they went there, their teachings forced an awakening upon them. And that's something that Mage the Ascension does have there. That's like the point of the game is an awakening. But it gets so bogged down in mechanics of how a player would do it. I think players forget that that is a monumental occasion and a beginning for your character of great depth and spirituality. That is also hard to plumb into when you just want to have a fun game of magic and antics. But it's something you want to do because that ties you to goals. And the fun of pursuing those goals is the imagination of what must have occurred for your awakening. And in here, they have an easy out for any Akashic to understand how it might occur. They went to go see a great man on a mountain in a shrine, and it was this Clay Tall who was a shifter. And once they accepted that he was a shifter, they didn't freak out he was a werewolf. In fact, they, they that was cause to learn from him, that there was wisdom. They must have thought it was a wolf that simply realized it was a man and thus became this man. And in its simplicity, sat there to learn the wisdom of the wolf that also knew of man so well. And then they pursued further, and the thoughts continue, and what a cool concept, and an awesome place. And in their writings and teachings, they focus on the mind being the governing factor for it and this new power, which is really just an inner peace. And once they tap into it, boom, they awaken. They, you know, this the Akashic Brotherhood, and, and they're powerful, look them up. They're pretty cool for that. However, what if you're the worm and you see that? How is it you were segregated from the rest of the Guru Nation because you felt so differently and you went over here with the minimal amount of werewolves? In fact, most of the, your tribe are from other tribes. It's not like you have a specific kinfolk only and you're relying on that. You're actually taking the people who get disenchanted with the tribe they're in and they come seek you and they could join you if they can answer wisdom questions. Wait a minute. All they got to do is come ask questions of you and you're retaining these would-be Ronin into becoming part of your tribe and you call them stargazers for understanding the wisdom of self, that they might have been stargazers in a past life? Interesting. Now let's kill it. I want it destroyed. And the worm does what the worm does. Beast of wars and everything you got. That didn't work out. <laughs> they came over to kill all these badasses and they, you know, you're coming with rage and they, they resisted successfully. Well, then the worm went, all right, that's not going to work. Um, let's try something else. Like, that's not all we have. And we'll get back to doing that again. But let's let's try a different path. We're going to send, uh, let's send two wisdom seekers. Two corruptors, send them in. Let's see how it works. And these two corruptors go in. And why I like this story is because it's basically setting up a mentality. Some of the two greatest questions I enjoy in this book. What these two ask this great Clay Tall, the first question they say, is how do we know that your truth is not a lie? Oh man, what a brilliant question. And it's a brilliant question because it's backed and answered by a simple gesture Clay Tall does. Clay Tall smiles and places his hand upon his belly. That's it. That's the answer given that defeats them both. Now, they go through talking about how these two went through the temple, providing misdirection and basically uh, spreading shit-stirring, causing problems, confounding monks, teaching them that what they got is a lie, what they have going on is false, and they're spreading these teachings out to their students. But when it came to Claytal, and Claytal wanted, to, wanted them to ask him questions, these two debated which was their own downfall. Right, The two of them debated which one had the best question, inevitably asking this question, which is actually the weakest question they could have asked. 
How do we know that your truth is not a lie? Claytal smiles and places his hand upon his belly. Because this is a question of confidence, isn't it? How are you so confident that what you know is the truth? But if you've been listening, you know that he already, the first student knows the answer to that question walking in. Experience is its own teacher. And if we only care about the now and we only focus on the now because that's where inner peace is, then our truth is the truth because simply this is what we have experienced to this point. So therefore, the truth as I see it is going to be the truth until circumstances dictate a change in that truth, which inevitably are going to lead us back to the one truth that we seek. The true guy in Rome, that oneness, the guy of Dharma. So there is no need to debate. I mean, it's a useless question at that point. So easily defeated. And so these guys were pissed, right? So the final weapon, they send an old beggar to the temple is what is what the worm does. Like, okay, now we're going to do this. This, old, this diseased old beggar comes in, covered in sores. He's looking for food and healing. And of course, the monks take him in. And what they do is to ease his suffering, they rely on mantra chanting. Maybe they gave him water. Maybe they were helio, but it just, they relied on mantra chanting. This tells me he came in jacked up. And they were like, yeah, you're still jacked up. Well, we'll try to heal you with mantra chanting, but we're not exactly giving you food and water, which we'll assume they did, right? Compassion. But ultimately, the beggar asked the question of Claytal, how can you spend your time with me alone when others suffer the world over? What use is my healing when I will go gamble and whore my health away again? Others who cannot reach the shrine are more needy. And Claytal sat there for a bit and thought about it and said, yeah, you're right, my enemy. You are right. I had hoped to prepare a while longer, but my patience is vanity. I will heed wisdom and send my monks out into the world. And that's how we know the stargazers. He said, hey, everybody, we're done here. Pack it up. Let's leave. And then he told everybody, when I'm gone, you have a couple months before the worm will come and reduce this place to salt. Figure it out. And he walked away to spread his good works. That's all the real learning I feel he needs to actually give out for someone to be a stargazer, to have that going. It's a very powerful thought process, I feel, for you to have when you look at this book. Therefore, when using this tri-book, I think its strength is that your concept is adhered to whatever mentor relationship you might have had, and that mentor need not be limited to a werewolf, right? It opens up that aspect. What if it is an Akashic? What if it's just a martial arts teacher, Right? O-sensei is quoted in here, but I often like to think that Aikido has strong philosophy uh, to not harming anyone else and perfecting the self like most martial arts. And that's what it wants to do and teach. But in that is a pursuit of the oneness uh, that they're talking about and an inner peace. Um, we could go on. There's tons of stuff you can do that, not just martial art. Eastern philosophy does it a lot. There are normal philosophies do it. Even in a way, let's say you decided to go at it at the route of uh, something I tend to be against is atheism. And uh, not for what you think and not to make it personal. I think somewhere in there, a lot of uh, the atheists have come across have described it so passionately of why everyone else has it wrong. But I'm often left with this this hollow feeling like, well, how do you know you're right? Like you can crow everyone is wrong, but how do, why do you think that you're right? It's a different world when you talk to one that says, no, I don't know that I'm right or wrong. I just feel that this is my truth. And I hope that you seek yours. And to me, that's the person I want to listen to. You accepted what we are. And there didn't need to be a segregation. And we just see the world differently. But to understand each other is the key in that one self, right? We are all of one. And I prefer that approach. It, it sits better with me. It makes it a much more uh, awesome mean, right? But there's another thing they have in here, too. Um, 
It talks about logic provides the power to disarm all ethical viewpoints that basically make, uh, that revitalize good and evil, right? That's what it hints to. It's almost uh, direct there too, and I'm trying to splice through like a paragraph and a half of explanation here to get that down here. That, that There are poisonous thoughts that we have of anger, envy, delusion, and uh, these, these things are used for ego gratification. But what happens when we rely on these, the stargazers as spouse, is that you you become lost to them, right? When all your pursuit is glory, you become something like the get offenders. Isn't that true? Well, when you say that the patriarchy is the enemy, that all man's the enemy, and you become this black fury and this tribe that walks around warring with the enemy so much, you actually segregate and become a matriarchy, which is just as bad as the patriarchy, to its grand excess. You might not be there yet, but one day you will become the enemy you seek to fight. And in that is the wisdom. That if we have enemies at all, and we don't understand them and don't approach them with compassion, we risk becoming them in our pursuit of denying them, right? Because you will only know your enemy better than the enemy will know itself, right? That's that's sort of how that goes down. And that's not me getting too philo- philosophical. It's just me pointing out that these are how these paradox arguments work and are not incorrect. It's the way to look at them. However, there are some key people in here and mentions. I don't want to get away from this podcast without saying it. They give birth to a new way to looking at uh, Kalindo, is a term I'm getting at. Let me just get to it. There is a pursuit of something called Kalindo, which is basically the way of the wind. This is the martial arts that the shapeshifters invent here, that the Stargazers are renowned for. And and what it does is it enables them to master rage and then utilize um, the wind itself and their relationship with it to overcome any physical altercation they get into with the pursuit of there being a peace. Destroy what you must to so that others may live if they will not seek the compassion of peace, right? Defending things are fine. They're not saying don't attack and destroy the worm because the worm does have a lot of minions that need that and they will not hear you. But what they are saying is that to overcome this madness that a lot have, they've pursued an inner peace. And I got a pretty kick-ass story in here talking about a journey of one stargazer who seeks that out directly. And it's basically they discover it by pondering the problem of the worm itself. And how to diffuse its anger. And that's uh, one of the ways it gets to, right? To escape its trapped bonds, the, the ways of the wind, the power of it. And it's shape-shifting. And another way of saying it, it's a martial art designed to read your opponent and what they're attacking you with. And to simply not be there and to counter what goes on. That's the whole of the martial art of Kalindo. But you need to be fast to do it. You need to master yourself and your shifting to be able to do that. You need to be pretty good at doing those things and make it happen. And if you can't envision it, imagine the nine and a half, ten foot tall Krenos form trying to attack the shape of a, of another Krenos and they go to rip apart its entrails, right? Which, okay, you have that opening, but what if that person's able to shift into lupus and all you catch is air and you trip over the lupus form landing on the ground and as you land and slide, they jump on your back, now in Krenos again, and they have claws to the back of your throat to ask a simple question. Now, did I defeat you? Or did you defeat yourself? Because your rage, you, you vented the power and speed thinking that there was no other way. And I'm surely my, I'm on top of you. I could rip out your throat. But what does that prove when I could simply talk to you about what happened? And we could see what it is that caused the altercation itself. This is very much, I feel, like the, the romanticism of martial arts here. That we don't want to be these badass warriors, but we have skills and techniques to be these badass warriors, not to cause violence, to stop it, prevent it, to defend, which is the hallmark of it. 
And of course, there's a darker half that does the opposite, the yin and yang, and you could, but that's not the stargazers. They work against that dark half, right? And that's the point. Paradox and Enigma are mentioned in here too, and this is important because it talks about the fact that the worm truly does try to find a type of... Uh, it, it tries to do what they do. They talk about a controlled cognitive dissonance using Paradox and Enigma to to get through the web, but that's not actually going to work, right? There's a level of sane madness that you need to obtain to be able to do that. And they talk about a Chakal, uh, this, this individual who does this, who comes through and realizes the worm needs that help and what they do to deal with that. And you get into this deeper philosophy the tribe uses, which just dives right into the five minds, right? And, uh, or meditation, I guess you could say, an elemental pathing that they leave down here for others to follow that can help them conquer rage is what they're getting at. So in this, the five minds is what I'm stumbling to. Um, the five supreme states that you must cultivate in your consciousness as a weapon and defense against the weaver and worm. Interesting, right? You have the meditation state, which is the earth mind. You have the compassion state, which is the water mind. Kylindo, which is the wind mind. And then you have instinct, which is fire mind. And of course, the moon mind, which is enigmas. All these things are what they have to enca encapsulate and perfect in order to be able to do what they're talking about, which is deal with the worm and solve that issue of the weaver at the same time. And this has not been done yet. And it's impossible. But they give a reason that the, the tribe exists and what they strive to do. Finally, we get to this whole idea of reincarnation. Just to say it in itself, where we mentioned past life and that's a background that simply talks about it, they truly believe in reincarnation is you getting it right. And there's a profound thought process that says, I might have been born and get offenders this time around, but I come back to the stargazer I once was because I come to the stargazers to become one. I started as a corporate accountant who hates the world, but learned of this new philosophy of a guy at a temple that's luminous and I come to see him and oh, it's Clay Tall. And I, I'm now becoming a stargazer. I'm going to hang out here, but I'm just a mortal. Can I be called a stargazer? They intimate that, yes, you can. Because in a past life, that's exactly who I might have been. And thus, I'm there. Wait a second. They talk about stargazers taking worm entities as pupils to learn what they do. Because in a past life, they were once Guru. That everyone belonged to the true Gaia Rome, and thus of Gaia, and all are of Gaia. And therefore, they believe that the worm has corrupted them but they could still be helped. Compassion is the key and the mind to do it will help them find a way that there are like BSDs who are walking around now, stargazers trying to spread the philosophy that they, they learned as the stargazer way, the teachings of Claytal. How profound and controversial. But then it brings up a thought. If the worm is a being who is secondary into compassion, we're all against it to kill it. Are the Guru not their own apocalypse? That's what I was left with. At the end of all this, of looking at this tribe book and reading it, camps and the ideas and the thoughts and the Glendo and all that's in here, it, it points out a fact. All these other tribes are so hard-nosed to go out an enemy to kill it to wipe it out, even themselves. Fighting for turf, territory, and differences. This is the tribe book that ends and kills everyone's out-of-character thought process that these books are meant to, to appropriate culture or segregate or humiliate or do any of the nonsense that people thought. It's clear by this Stargazer tribe book, the whole intention was to point out that the reason the extreme camps, 
mention in these other books that did all this bad stuff that drew the attention from people who didn't fully understand what they read or didn't read at all was because there was a total story that they were looking at, which is the werewolves are, are pretty much their own enemy. It's like they're a group that was given the power to do a specific task, but that task was missed or they're no longer needed, but they still possess the ability to be here. Why are they here now? What are they meant to do? And all they know to do is defend territory. And they see the territory shrinking as man grows. And they see the worm coming through and ever strength and ever stronger. But they've never thought about freeing the worm or freeing themselves from that, that yoke of having to do that. What if the worm was meant to be there? Because the simple truth is, the worm was also created by Gaia. And so was the weaver. And so was the wild. Therefore, the weaver was always meant to trap the worm. Mankind was always meant to be corrupted. And, and the BSDs were always meant to be the BSDs. You see what I'm saying? We were meant to be these things, and to get in the way of them is almost, and it's not even almost in my eyes, what the stargazers are saying, to be in the way of these things is to oppose what Gaia intended anyway. However, we choose in this carnation of ourselves to be in the way, to only teach them that what they're doing isn't progress. You're repeating a mistake. That even for you, it's to find enlightenment. If we all find compassion for the worm and work our minds to free it and get rid of these illusions of self and ego, then what we do is we get closer to that oneness we had and thus fulfill the purpose and maybe, just maybe, end the apocalypse. That's the Stargazer tribe book to me as I read it. I think it's a powerful tribe book. It's definitely a great tribe book to have. Um, I will say, though, I totally get that its complexity takes away from Werewolf. I will say that. As cool as it is, I understand why a lot of storytellers use them as storyteller characters. They, they don't really espouse a, a, a tribe unity. Right? I don't feel that. I feel that this is the place you go to get the philosophy to walk around and be on your own to spread good works, which is that Kwai Chain Kane mechanism or Kung Fu, if you will, of story or somehow the wandering hero, whatever you want to insert. That's what it is. This doesn't bring up those elements that people love werewolf about, which is the pack, relying on each other, self. That is gratifying to werewolf players, and that's what they look for, and that's what they want more of. And the fact that it's not there in this tribe book alone leaves you thinking that, uh, all right, it's, it's cool. It's a cool thought. I would love a mentor NPC that knew of a different way that could help the the rage-filled members of, our, of my pack get along better. But not necessarily to be that guy who doesn't feel like he would have any reason to be with anybody. Add to the fact that we have mages that are now in it. I'm a big guy who's a purist. If we're playing werewolf, it's werewolf. It's cool that mages are NPCs. We might come across them for knowledge or to help them or friendships or allies. That's cool. That doesn't bother me at all. That's telling a dynamic tale and the world's a lot bigger place. However, when it's talking about that, you know, you were raised in a tribe where, you know, mages were down the hall sweeping the floors while you were learning to break bricks with your hand. It sort of leaves you feeling, you know, what game am I playing? Where's the horror in that? Where's that world of darkness element? And that's what I'll say to this tribe book as a whole. That world of darkness element doesn't feel here. Like, if there's a good guy tribe that you were looking for, oh, it's these guys. And man, are they a good guy tribe. They're, they're really there because of their acceptance and compassion for all. And that makes them a number one. Is this what we need, though, to feel the themes of werewolf, Right. Where, uh, when will you rage? Who's going to attack the enemy of Gaia? Who's going to save this world from the apocalypse? It's not going to be the Stargazers. Right? To me, they're utilizing the Care Bear Stare from afar with a with a different mindset that just, you know, it's seclusion. 
and getting rid of this. Like you wouldn't, to them, it'd be too egotistical to stand forward and seek glory and saving the apocalypse, which they seemably feel that is very much what should happen. Now, they do come out and say, don't do it. I'll give you that. But I feel that maybe that's not even true. Because how would you get what they are saying if it wasn't one super being to rise up to do it all? Right? We have the 989th clay tall. What's the magic number? A thousand? Two thousand? At which point does he uh, ascend and go Super Goku? If, if that's what that is. Or becomes Vegeta Goku or whatever it is. The throw the Dragon Ball Kamehameha Kalindo style or whatever it is. And, and defeat the web and the weaver and the worm and all that. Right? It's not enough for the Stargazers to say that the weaver's the true enemy. They also acknowledge that the worm you have to free, who's also mad and in the enemy too. But if we free him with compassion and Care Bear Stare, we can then defeat the weaver with a giant pair of scissors brought through the mind and utilizing mankind in a pure form if we let them do what they do. Is that what we're saying? Because they are directly pointing to the fact that mankind in their version is referring to mages. And that somehow the Akashic writings lead to the Akashic Brotherhood to lead us to do just what they're talking about. Which to me, a lot of seeds in this first edition book that is too big of a picture that is too segregated from what we've read and reviewed so far. Where I think it's a good tribe book if you're looking for an Eastern connection or a werewolf tribe to play in other like Eastern-based games or cool things where they do have a cosmology that supports the inclusion of this type of thing. Or if you're just looking for a campaign you want to run where it's like, cool, let's have the rarest of the rare and we're going to have crossovers. Or we want a Stargazer to come in as an NPC to look for a mentor because a player um, who goes against the grain has done some great atrocity and we want to save him. But this Stargazer is going to mentor him to be a Stargazer and try to try to redeem himself with those people by being what he is now. So instead of calling him a Ronin, he has a tribe that backs him with Chimera support. That's cool, too. There's ways to make this work, and obviously the book exists for a reason, but I get why a lot of people sort of, eh, not really, not my game, not looking for it. It's controversial stuff in here, but it's all good. I, I'll say it again. I back it. I think it's badass to own and to have for the ton of content I just talked about today, and there's different takes that you're going to get from looking at it too, and I'm excited to hear about those. Thanks, everybody. That'll conclude the tribe book review today. I hope you buy it. Hope you enjoy it and look forward to hearing what you think about it. Also, I can't wait to check out the second or the revised version of this book too. That should be pretty cool on top of it. Talk to you folks later. Thank you for listening to our 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you like what you heard and would like to support us, please leave a review or share it with friends. Thanks again and we'll catch you next time.